morning, Meadows. It is an honor and a privilege to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Uh, For those who don't know me, I'm Andrew Barnes, or Drew Barnes, and I'm one of the elders here at Meadows. And if you've been around Meadows, you know that we've been going through a series over the last couple months on our shared member values. And all of that has been accumulating to this month of unity. And so we have been in unity. We've Pastor Andrew has talked about John 17, the Lord's Prayer, for all believers to be united as one, just as Jesus, the Son, and the Father are one. And last week, he walked us through Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3. Are we eagerly seeking to pursue unity as believers? And today we will continue in Ephesians. We'll pick up right where Andrew left off in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 4 through 6 will be our text today. But I want us to pray one more time as we enter into the word Father, we come eagerly expecting to hear from you this morning that you have given us your word. And so, Father, I ask that your spirit humble our hearts, clear the, the distractions that are in our lives, so that we can hear your word. Father, just as it is the desire of you and of Paul that we may be one, may we be unified. So, Father, I do ask that you give me the words to speak by your spirit. Give me the clarity. May we see your glory today. Name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So today we are going to be once again in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1 today, just give us some context, and then we'll be walking through verse 6. So this is what Paul writes to Ephesians Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. This is a familiar verse for many of us, especially as we talk about unity. Ephesians 4 is a primary place that we go to. And I urge you, if you have your Bibles, I hope that you have them out already, but look down at these verses, starting in verse 4, and just take a few seconds and look and notice with me What word is repeated most often? Verse 
I hope you catch the theme of this one word. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. He repeats this quite a bit in three verses. There must be something important that Paul is stressing here. And so today, let us look at this important message that Paul is writing to the Ephesians, but not just to the Ephesians, to us today. And so our big idea for today is that our unity as believers is fully dependent upon the unity of the triune God. Our unity as believers is fully dependent upon the unity of the triune God. And so let's start in verse 6. We're going to start at the end and then work our way to the beginning. In verse 6, Paul writes, there is one God. There's not many gods, but one God. Give some context to the uh, hearers in Ephesus. They are in a city with there's a lot of trade. So a lot of people from outside other cities and places are coming in and leaving. A lot of ideas, a lot of different theologies are coming through. And so this is a city that has many thoughts, many ideas and understandings of who God is. But even more so, in the city itself, there are temples and places of worship for other gods. And so these hearers are not Jewish people, as we'll see in a little bit, but they are Gentiles who have been born and raised and lived in Ephesus, and so they would be familiar with this idea that there are multiple gods out there. But what Paul is making clear that there isn't any other God, there is only one true God. There's one God. Where does Paul get this idea that there's only one God? Well, Paul being Jewish, being from the tribe of Israel, he quotes the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This thought didn't come up, Paul didn't come up with this thought on his own, but he's quoting all the way back to Deuteronomy. A central verse for Israel. This verse is saying, That there is no other God, that God, the God of Israel, is the highest God. He is sovereign over all. He is creator over all. He is the true God. And as we continue in this text, we will see the importance that there is only one true God. Now what does this teach us for today? While we may not see temples dedicated to other gods here in Rolling Meadows or in the surrounding suburbs. We do have our gods here in America. For some, it may be the God of work. How often do we brag about how many hours that we put into work? Oh, I worked a 70-hour week this week. I worked a 75, 80-hour week. We dedicate our life and time to work. How about comforts? 
I desire comfort. We live in America where we have comfort right at the tips of our fingers, where we can control and order things from our phone. We don't even have to get up from our couch anymore. Sometimes we can make our children or relationships our God. Or we value them over the one true God. And so I pray that today that we will earnestly search our hearts and be honest with ourselves. Are there things in this world, in our lives, that we are putting above the one true God? it's convicting God has been continually convicting me that there is things in my life that I spend more of my time with, my energy, my resources doing than the one true God. And so I pray that the Spirit will convict us of those things, but not just convict us, but He will bring redemption into those things and He will bring our thoughts and our time and energy to worship the one true God that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. You see, this one true God, he's one God, three persons. I hope that you picked up on this already as we read through. But let's just read through this one more time, starting in verse 4. See if you can pick up this triune God. There is one body, one spirit just as you are called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Most of the time we understand the Trinity within Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul reverses this in his passage today. And and so we're going to just take our time and walk through the three persons of this one God. The 1689 London London Baptist Confession says this about the triune God. This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without the essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning, and therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. The truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on Him. You see, our unity as believers is fully dependent upon the unity of the triune God. So let's go back up into verse 4. There is one body, one spirit. Now, like I said, I hope that you have your Bibles with you, because we're just going to start exploring what Paul talks about on each of these three persons, the Spirit, 
Lord, and Father. And we're just going to camp out in the book of Ephesians today. I know that there's so many other places in Scripture that we could go to. And realistically, we could make a full sermon of year just studying on the triune God. But for our purposes today, we have limited time. So I urge you, this week, sit down, read through Ephesians chapter 1 through 6 in one sitting and reflect and observe what Paul, how Paul describes this triune God. So if we back up to chapter 1, let's go chapter 1 starting in verse 13. He says this, In him, referring back to Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the truth, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. First thing to note that the Spirit, the same Spirit talked about in chapter 4, He is our seal. We can have an assurance of our salvation. That no one can tamper with that seal besides the Father. I love that Sadie, my daughter, will receive mail from her aunts. And so about once a month, once every other month, there will be a letter that comes, and it will be signed from her Aunt Sandy. And in that, there's a little picture that she drew, but it's sealed. No one can open it besides Sadie. And it's purposely sent from her aunt to my daughter. And she opens it, and there's a great joy, and she carries around that piece of paper with her. And the same is true that the Spirit is our seal. That we are sealed for eternity. That we are sealed to be in the presence and glory of God forever and ever. Amen? Let's keep moving on. We, next verse in verse 14. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. We have been given the Spirit. We ought to live in Spirit knowing that we will receive an internal inheritance that we'll look at in a little bit later on. But if you are a son or daughter of the one true God, we will receive an eternal inheritance. So I don't know where you're at this morning, but may this give us hope. May this give us encouragement that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that we will receive an inheritance from God himself. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to live with us, to dwell in us. Let's keep going. Paul doesn't stop there. In verse 17, he writes this, I pray that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirits of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. 
See, the Spirit directs us, reveals the will of God to us. And so when we enter and we pick up the Word of God and when we read the Word of God, we don't have to sit here confused. But if we are in Christ, the Spirit will use these words to reveal what God is communicating to us through His Word. And when we are in prayer, He reveals wisdom and revelation to us. And again, I don't know if you've ever faced a situation where you don't know the words to say. You're sitting there like, oh, I don't even know how to approach this situation. Do you know that we can rely on the Spirit to give us wisdom and understanding in that moment? That we don't have to rely on our own finite understanding or knowledge, but He has given us His Spirit, the Spirit that is our sealment, the Spirit that is our down payment, the Spirit that reveals His wisdom and revelation, ultimately so that we can know Him, not just know of Him. There's a lot of people that know of Him. I've been around seminaries and I've met those studying PhDs in, in New Testament, and ultimately they know a lot about God. They know probably the New Testament better than I know the New Testament, but yet they don't have a personal relationship with God. And I pray that that's not us, that we don't just know intellectually God, but that we can experience God. It's from knowing God that we can experience God. It's a relationship. It's a husband knowing his wife. Wife, knowing her husband. And this is done through the Spirit. We keep reading. Paul doesn't end there. Let's turn to chapter 2, starting in verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. See, we emphasizing one spirit, not multiple spirits, one spirit, we have access to the Father. Chapter 2, verse 22, Paul writes, In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. We're being built up together. We've talked about already maturity, growing in maturity And in order to grow in the maturity, we must be reliant upon the Spirit that He has given us. Chapter 3, verse 5, says this, This was not made known to people in other generations, and it is now revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by His Spirit. Again, the Spirit reveals wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 3, verse 16, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. Who needs to be strengthened today? I don't know what everyone's going through, but I'm sure 
could all use the strength of the Holy Spirit today. Keeps going. Chapter 4, verse 30. says, And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. And he reminds us again, you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Our sealment is again our insurance that we are redeemed children of God. Chapter 5, verse 18. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. We are able to be filled with the Spirit. And I pray that we will be children of God. We'll be a church that is filled with the Spirit of God. That we will be spending time in this Word and in prayer and gathering with one another. Affirming one another. Showing grace to one another. Trusting one another. Submitting to one another. And in doing so, may we be reliant and filled with the Spirit of God. Chapter 6, verse 17, we see that the Spirit, or take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Do we regularly read and study this Word? Do we know this Word? This is our sword of the Spirit. And finally, chapter 6, verse 18. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all provisions and intercession for all the saints. Are we regularly praying in the Spirit? Again, this is a brief overview. There's so much more that the Spirit does. But I encourage you this week, can we just take time, read through Ephesians and Look at how Paul talks about this triune God. So we've looked at the Spirit. He is our sealment. He is our down payment. He gives us wisdom and knowledge. He gives us strength. He's our guarantee that we are redeemed. So we have insurance of our redemption and our salvation. May we be reliant upon the Spirit. Paul continues that in going back to our passage today, chapter 4, starting in verse 5, he now says there is one Spirit, one Lord. This is an interesting title. Usually we hear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why does he use the Lord? Again, if we zoom out to the context of what has already been written, may we go to chapter 1, verse 20, and hear these words that Paul has already written. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. This is important that Christ is at the right hand of the Father because this is why he's going to say, 
tell us why this is important. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subject everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Jesus, the son, the second person of the triune God is Lord over everything. Amen. See, we live in a world. There's a lot of tension in this world right now. We look on the news or on in our social media, our feeds, and we see that sin is just on display for the world to see. And the sin is just becoming natural. It seems it's almost coming natural to us. That there's no grievance over what is happening in our world. I know there's also a lot of debates and fights and bickering over different stances and different views. And it seems like this world is almost falling apart. But what Paul is saying here, by using the title Lord, that Jesus, the Son, is over everything. What is happening today is not shocking to him. He is still sovereign over everything. And not just sovereign over everything in this world, but he is sovereign over everything in our lives as well. Again, I, I wish we could just camp out here. But can we find hope? When we read through that Facebook feed and we see some comments or we see a post that angers us, that makes us question what is going on in this world, may we be reminded that the Son, He is Lord, and everything is subject to under His feet. So we have one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. Let us just take a few moments and notice a couple ways that Paul talks about the Father. Again, there's so much in Ephesians. Well, a lot of times we think the book of Romans is Paul's systematic theology, his Here's everything. There's so much theology in Ephesians. Even more, I think even more so than the book of Romans. And so this is only scratching the surface. But can we go back all the way to chapter 1 again? Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has, been ble- who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, in Christ. If you are in Christ today, if you believe that Jesus died upon a cross for our sins and rose again and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, these 
are the promises that we can cling to. So what are these spiritual blessings that the Father bestows upon us? Listen. He chose us before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. If you are in Christ, you are holy and blameless. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his good pleasure of his will. You are sons and daughters of the Most High King. He has lavished on us his glorious grace. We have received grace from him. In him we have received redemption through this blood of Jesus Christ. We have received the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Again, that he richly poured out on us with all the wisdom and understanding. What else? He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that the purpose of Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth and in him. Paul doesn't end there. We've also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believe the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession the praise of his glory. This is the spiritual blessings that we receive because the Father has bestowed upon his children. So if you are here today and you're struggling with your identity, you're struggling with who you are, may we come back to what Paul says that you are holy and blameless. That you are adopted as a son and daughter. That you have received grace so that you can be redeemed and have salvation. That you will receive an inheritance. You will dwell with God forever and ever, praising Him. Oh, may we find our security and our identity. And who God the Father calls us. Not what this world tells us. Not what Satan tells who we are. Not what we think we believe about ourselves. But may we find our identity in who God calls us. So God the Father... He blesses us with all spiritual blessings. God the Father has power. We've already read this verse already, but chapter 1, verse 20, He exercises this power in Christ by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavens. I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone that can raise people from the dead. Nor have I ever met anyone who can raise themselves from the dead. But the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead 
So as we sung earlier, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? For Christ has defeated death because the Father has raised him from the dead. And the reality is, if we are in Christ, we have died with Christ, but we can also have a hope that we will be raised with Christ just as he was raised. And this is our hope. That we will be raised from the dead just as our Savior was raised from the dead. And we see it already that he has the power to do so. For chapter 2, starting in verse 4, Paul writes, But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised up us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. This is truth that we can come to. Glorious truth. So we see Paul is talking on the the power of the Spirit. We have Jesus Christ, the Lord over all. We have the Father who calls us, who demonstrates his power. And so we see that there is one God, three persons. There's three persons, perfect unity. See these, I hope already you've started seeing this, that they share the same will. Can you imagine any of this taking place? Can you imagine our salvation taking place if they were all operating under their independent wills? Can you imagine the father saying to the son, Hey, son, I'm going to send you into a, this world, my, our creation. Yes, I understand that they've rejected us and they're sinful human beings. But you're going to come as a baby and, and you're going to grow. and You will be in perfect obedience to me. But this creation, these people, they're actually going to crucify you. If the son was operating under his own will <laughs> um, are you serious father you want I'm going to die for these people <laughs> I'm going to show my glory I'm going to show my strength my power but that's not what Christ did for he subjected himself he submitted himself to the father in perfect obedience to death even unto death for Philippians chapter 2. We've preached on this already, but can we just visit this again? Paul writes, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself 
by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to point of death, even to death on a cross. The Son shares the same will as the Father. Can you imagine if the Spirit was operating under his own independent will? Say, the Father say, Father, Son says to the Spirit, hey, we're going to send you into these people. You're going to dwell with them. Wait, hold on. I'm going to dwell with sinful people. And these people oftentimes aren't going to really remember me. But the Spirit submits obediently to the Father and the Son. You see all the triune God Each person plays a role in our salvation. Each person in the triune God we are fully dependent upon for our salvation. Each person of the triune God and their unity we are dependent upon for our unity as believers. And so we see That there is one God, three persons. Three persons, perfect unity. Perfect unity, one body. For Paul says this, let's go back up to the beginning of verse 4. There is one body. One spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. There's one body. There's not multiple bodies of Christ. There's one body. For Calvin writes this, There is one body. He proceeds to show more fully in how complete a manner Christians ought to be united. The union ought to be such that we shall form one body and one soul. These words donate the whole man. We ought to be united, not in part only, but in body and soul. He supports this by a powerful argument. As ye ye have been called to one hope of your calling. We are called to one inheritance and one life, and hence it follows that we cannot obtain eternal life without living in mutual harmony in this world. One divine invitation being addressed to all, they ought to be united in the same profession of faith and to render every kind of assistance to each other. Oh, were this thought deeply impressed upon our minds, that we are subject to a law which no more permits the children of God to differ among themselves than the kingdom of heaven to be divided. How earnestly should we cultivate brotherly kindness? How should we dread every kind of amnesty if we duly reflect that all who separate us from brethren estrange us from the kingdom of God? 
And yet, strangely enough, while we forget the duties which brethren owe to each other, we go on boasting that we are sons of God. Let us learn from Paul that none are at all fit for the inheritance who are not one body and one spirit. We share one body. We share the same hope. We don't have different hopes. We don't have different hopes in different gods, but there's one God. We all have the same hope in the same God. We have one faith, not one faith in other gods, not a divided faith, but we all share the same faith. One baptism, I know that there's different means or modes of baptism, but it all symbolizes that we were died with Christ and we are raised with Christ. We all have the same one hope, one faith, one baptism. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. For we all share in this same one hope, one faith, one baptism. And in chapter 3, Paul addresses this. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now known to the holy apostles and spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The wall of hostility that divided the Jews and the Gentiles is torn. And so the Jews that worship the one true God, God has now called Gentiles into that same promise. And so Jews and Gentiles are now one body. Coming to one faith, one hope, one baptism. So I urge you, are we first dependent, or is our unity dependent upon the unity of the triune God? And in doing so, are we striving to maintain the unity of believers? For I am convinced that throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he is desiring that the church of Ephesus be united in one body. And as Paul is praying this to the church of Ephesus, I pray for here at Meadows that we would be unified as one. As one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. For if we are in Christ. May we be 
united in Christ and be united with one another. One commentator said this, the triune God not only creates the unity we have as believers, but also serves as the ultimate picture of unity. Jesus prayed for unity, reflecting on his relationship with the Father. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. A healthy church is characterized by such unity, and it is a marvelous testimony to the world. First, our triune God, he is the one that has created unity among us. For we are in Christ. Because we are in Christ, we can have unity with one another. He also gives us and sets an example for us through the triune God, what unity looks like. If you joined us as we, um, during the Q&A, one of the Q&A luncheons, a few weeks ago, someone asked, is Meadows a healthy church? And while I don't think we directly answered that question, and I don't have the answer for you this morning, but I think a follow-up question, an honest question that we must be honest with is, as Meadows, are we eagerly pursuing the unity of believers? Or as that one commentator wrote, a healthy church is characterized by such unity, and it is a marvelous testimony to the watching world. See, our unity as we are united as believers, first and foremost, glorifies God. And second, gives testimony to the watching world. So brothers and sisters, I pray that we will strive to be united with one another. That we will grow in knowledge of what that looks like to be united with one another for the purpose to glorify God and to give testimony to the watching world. As I close, may you just hear the words from Paul one more time. Starting in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Let us pray. Father, you call.